from the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. This is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome back to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. We start back after our summer hiatus by sharing a collaborative project our students created with Texas Folklife. During summer programs, these students explored our community and found out more about barbecue, ghosts, and a little bit of true crime. Hi, my name is Cindy Natividad. This is Patty Mejia. We are here at with the Pitmaster at Micklethwaite's in Austin. It is listed as one of the top 10 barbecue joints in Texas on the Texas Monthly Magazine. Um, and my name is Bryn Garcia. I grew up in South Texas. I grew up in a ranch, really. Uh, it's between uh, Kingsville and Dallas, Texas. I would say my mom was a pretty big influence in my life. She was just a really good person. She learned, she was an awesome cook. Even though she only really does one style of cooking, but she tried adventures out, and uh, so I learned a lot from her. And she's just an all-around amazing person. To find out how Texas barbecue is really made, we asked Ren about the techniques he uses to smoke his meats. Without telling me your secret recipe, <laughs> can you tell me how you smoke your meats? Um. So we do. All of our, pretty much all our meats is the salt and pepper. There's a couple of special ingredients in there. But um, all of our meats are just salt and pepper. And I'll tell you, it has a little bit of garlic powder in there, but I can't tell you the other one. Our briskets, for instance, we're getting those on right now, and those will be for tomorrow. So that's going to be about a 12 or 14 hour cook on just the briskets. And you just, so we just lightly mustard, and then we put our rub on there uh, and then we just put it in the pit and we just let it go and we just keep the temperature at 275 the whole time until they're done but for the base, the, basically the the way we season and cook everything is pretty much the same so it's just it's a side box and we just keep the wood in there and it beats smoke through it and um, but it just depends on which cuts and how long those cuts take to cook up in Pecos, Texas, and my definition of Texas barbecue is what my dad made. He always made pork steaks, ribs, and sausage links. However, after talking to Ren, I realized that there are other ways to make Texas barbecue. To find out more, we spoke with the barbecue editor of Texas Monthly. We asked him what is the real meaning of Texas barbecue? My name is Daniel Vaughn. I'm the barbecue editor at Texas Monthly. Texas barbecue is changing so rapidly within the cities and there's so many different styles outside of the cities. You have East, East Texas style barbecue, which the, the sauce is really a big component. It's really an important part of the barbecue. It's part of the seasoning of the barbecue. Um, black pepper, which is a really popular seasoning in Central Texas, really is not all that popular in East Texas. It has a lot of influence from the enslaved population 
who were brought there by the plantation owners before the Civil War and brought with them their cooking traditions. South Texas barbecue, though, was really well known for cabrito, a whole goat, fajitas, and mollejas as well, um, doing uh, smoked sweetbreads, beef sweetbreads. Um, where, so, you know, then, then you get out to West Texas and like the hill country area where cooking over direct heat coals um, is still uh, really popular. Then you get up into the panhandle and rather than using jalapeno and everything like jalapeno and sausages or jalapeno and the cream corn or jalapeno and, you know, pretty much wherever you can use it in the rest of Texas, up in the panhandle, it's really green chilies. It's green chili sausages, it's green chili mac and cheese, uh, green chili cream corn. So it's just uh, more evidence of, of how much Texas barbecue is changing. Do you know where the Texas barbecue history begins? I mean, it's hard to say exactly where it originated as a like, specific place, but I mean, certainly in East Texas. You know, it's when the enslaved population came in prior to the Civil War as the plantation owners were bringing their enslaved people in and having them cook for the different events on the plantations. That's where Texas barbecue as we know it really started. And as barbecue spread across Texas, it was really cooked in that same way. Digging a trench in the ground, burning wood down to coals and cooking whole animals over top of it. And so that didn't really change until we started to get barbecue for sale. So before the Civil War and after the Civil War, up until about the 1880s or 1890s, barbecue as a term really meant a big event. And certainly the meat they served was called barbecue too. But if you heard the word barbecue, you thought of an event that you were going to go to. And a lot of times these events were free, put on uh, by barbecue committees and they took donations from different ranchers and farmers for the different animals they were going to cook. And it was to celebrate things like the 4th of July or Christmas or to celebrate a, a train making it to town or to invite a pol politicians to come speak. They would throw a barbecue for them. So they were big events. When I think about my favorite barbecue, I think about my dad grilling in the backyard, but as the editor of Texas Monthly, I had to ask Daniel what his favorite barbecue experience was. My best experience was my last one. It's always a good experience going out, searching for barbecue and, and, and getting people's stories. Like the last place I went was on Friday and I went down to Huntsville to what's now called Holy Smoke Barbecue. There's a church there called the New Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Huntsville. And at least since 1980, they've been cooking barbecue and serving it to the public and using those profits to help the church. And when they first started doing it, it was a woman named Anna Mae Ward, and it was just called the New Zion Missionary Baptist Church Barbecue. Later, it became known as Church Barbecue, and that was the name that they ran it under. And it closed. Pastor Edison, Clinton Edison, who had been uh, running the barbecue place, his mother was ill and he needed to take care of her and he closed the barbecue joint in 2019. And then last year in 2020, his daughter decided to, to open it back up again. And she opened it under the name Holy Smoke Barbecue. 
and that's the place I'm writing about now and the place that I've visited most recently and knowing that I get to tell a lot of people who might think that it's closed because it made big news when it closed and didn't make as big a news when it reopened that it is open and that you can go to Huntsville and eat at this really legendary barbecue place again and that was a family member who took it over and now it's a, a husband and wife team and her two their two daughters and son also work there so it's a real family affair and they're still using all the same old recipes that Anna Mae Ward who opened it originally left them in a recipe book they're really carrying on the tradition what was my favorite barbecue experience what was the last one they're speaking to Ren and Daniel it became clear that there is not only one Texas barbecue is there anything we can call traditional Texas barbecue? It's just the dirty word of tradition. What is traditional and what isn't? Well, what is traditional and what isn't is all depends on where along some timeline did you decide that from this point, at, at this point, at this date and time, that was traditional. That was That's the tradition that I'm basing what my definition of traditional is. You've got to pick some timeline some point along that timeline. And so my argument to people who say, uh, you know, oh my gosh, these people are smoking beef cheeks and making beef cheek tacos. Is that really like Texas barbecue shouldn't be brisket? I was like, well, I mean, I guess if you really want to go like full on traditional, you know, go find yourself some grass fed beef, let it sit out on an unrefrigerated shelf for three days uh, and then throw it in a smoker and, you know, that's what you were going to be eating from a meat market in 1890. So if that's if that's the sort of traditional barbecue you want, then have at it, but I don't want it. This story was produced by Sydney Natividad and Patty Mejia with assistance from Morgan Keeler for Stories from Deep in the Heart, a project from Texas Folklore. My name is Kirsten Best, working on a project with Texas Folk Life and Texas School for the Blind. I love all things dark and spooky. I want to see the most legendary haunted place in Austin. After a quick Google search, I found that place is the Driscoll Hotel. It was originally built in the 1880s. I'm here with Janine Plumer and Monica Ballard of Austin Ghost Tours. They're going to talk with me about all things paranormal, or is it just normal? Here is Monica talking about some of the facts they look for when looking into a building that may be haunted. A lot of what is, is experienced at the Driscoll, I think, comes about because of what the building is made of and where it's situated. Because we've found that there are three criteria to haunted sites. First of all, is the building or cluster of buildings old? Certainly that's the case in the case of the Driscoll. Secondly, is it near water? And thirdly, is it still being used? Is there still activity around it? We prefer buildings that are old, near water, and still have a lot of life to them because that essence of life adds to the energy that allows them to manifest themselves. So where's the water? downtown Austin. It's underneath the streets because Austin is honeycombed with 
uh, just a cross section of artesian springs that flow under the streets. And I believe it's that, along with the building materials of brick, limestone, my God, the pillars inside are cast iron. And so it's, it's all of the building materials and the movement of underground water combined with the, with the activity in the building that makes it like a battery. And every now and then it's charged to the point where something extraordinary will happen. Since the Driscoll is a commercial property and active hotel, how do the owners deal with its paranormal activity? When the Hyatt bought the the Driscoll, it was their first historic property. So they really didn't know what to make of ghosts or ghost stories uh, because you can't train for it, right? You can't prepare guests for something unexpected. Everything has to be expected and planned for so that when the guest says this, you say that. There's not much room for the paranormal in all of that. So I think once once they got used to the fact that what's paranormal other places is normal at the Driscoll, they became more comfortable with it and began seeing it as a selling point, just as the previous owners had. It's kind of like, okay, there's something strange going on here. We may not all believe in it, but by golly, we can put marketing on this and and turn it into a selling point. I don't want to see the ghosts of the Driscoll sold out. Both Janine and Monica discussed the false information about the Driscoll Hotel. The media is partly to blame for the portrayal of ghosts as evil. So I think the reason why the denial of maybe, it's not as much a denial of life after death as it is the media and the television shows are so fear-based that people won't stay in their hotels because if they think it's haunted, these television show experiences will happen. And so whoever the executives are who are making those decisions, um, I'm sure that they've all had a ghost encounter <laughs> for one thing, but um, but they're looking at it marketing wise, what percentage of people are gonna stay or what percentage are gonna stay away. And so they're correct in thinking that the majority of people are gonna be afraid. So that's, that's happened to us numerous times. About 20 minutes worth of bad research will tell you that the little girl who fell down the stairs is not Sam Houston's granddaughter. And as for the story of the second suicide bride, wasn't in the same room as the first. And she wasn't a socialite from Houston. Janine pops in to tell us a little more about the myth of the suicide bride. There were two brides that killed themselves exactly a hundred years apart in the same room because they were left by their by the husband. You know, what else can you do but kill yourself? Um, so actually, there we've tried really hard to find that um, first murder, the first death, but the second, um, there was an actual suicide in the 1980s. Janine and Monica share several personal anecdotes of their experiences with the paranormal at the Driscoll. 
uh, I talk about the elevators in the book, that there are two rules to the elevators at the Driscoll. You got to remember that these elevators used to have elevator operators. Some of them are still there in spirit. Sometimes they've even been seen. Rule number one, get on the elevator and push the button of the floor that you want and announce aloud that that is the floor that you want. Rule number two, equally, if not even more important, that you want the door to open when you get there. Um, I had a, a family who was staying at the hotel. They were on the fifth floor. They asked for a sort of a private tour and mini investigation. And so I met them, handed out some equipment, took them on a little tour around at some spots downtown. And then we got back to the hotel and I approached the head of security and I said, Nathan, Austin goes tours. And I just want to make sure we've got run of the hotel, right? We can go anywhere we want in the hotel because these folks are guests. And he said, yes, it's all been arranged. And in fact, I was going to let you guys into the Maximilian suite on the mezzanine level. I said, oh, the, with, with Carlotta's mirrors. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And he said, well, here's the thing. I was in there earlier tonight and it reeks of paint thinner. And I said, okay, so apparently you're repainting in here and there. And he said, no, that's the weird thing. Not that room, not anywhere on that floor. I said, okay, well, apparently we're not allowed in Carlotta's room. So what else you got? He said, I can let you in the Victoria room down here. And I said, fantastic. We can socially distant. It'll be great. So we finished up the investigation and I escort them up to the fifth floor using the rules, right? And I said, well, our time is up, so I got to go. But if anything happens in your room tonight, you're going to let me know, right? And they said, yes, yes. So I got on the elevator and pushed the, the button for lobby. And I said, lobby, please. And please open the door when we get there. And on the way back down, I was thinking, oh, man, I've got to remember to write down that story that Nathan told me about the Maximilian room. And the elevator stopped on the mezzanine and the doors opened, and I was directly across from the Maximilian suite. Wow. And I said, no, I'm no longer with guests. And I don't wanna get in trouble with security by leaving this elevator and going poking around on my own. So please take me down to the lobby and open the door when we get there. And the doors closed and it took me down to the lobby. And when the doors opened, I said, but thanks for the extra story. That was awesome. When we are relaxed and in the right state of mind, spirits beyond the living can reconnect with us and comfort us. There's lots of people relaxing there. So their brain waves are going from the beta busyness state down to the alpha state where they're relaxing. And I tell people all the time, don't forget about haunted activity and just allow whatever might happen to happen. So it's, I think it's those moments of relaxation that thins the veil between their dimension and ours. And we have the capability to see and experience things on the other side. In this process, I've learned that ghosts aren't out to do us harm. Also, most of the ghosts we encounter are loved ones. Since the Driscoll Hotel is a historic building in Austin, it carries the legacies and memories of those that stayed there throughout the years. 
This story was produced by Kirsten Best with the help of Carlos Salazar for Stories from Deep in the Heart, a project of Texas Folklife. My name is Bilad Cortez, and I'm a student in TSVVI's SWEAT program. One of my big interests is true crime. I like true crime because it's scary, but not too scary. When I watch or listen to anything true crime related, I like hearing about the motives of the killer. I wondered if there were any true crime stories in Austin. Jim Miles is the owner of The Walking Tours of Austin and liked true crime before it was cool. Why do you think some people are so drawn to true crime stories? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Why are we, I guess, in short, death cells, fear cells? It's that nature of our makeup as humans that we like to get close to the fire, not too close. Why do we tell ghost stories on camping trips? You know, it's because they're scary, but not too scary. I think puts us in touch with our human nature as broken uh, vessels. Um, I won't over-spiritualize it, but... There's something uh, out there, I think a reminder that evil is loose in the world is something that wakes us up at some deep level of our human nature, and we're drawn to it. It's somehow when we're most alive. That's true. There is something about true crime stories that just makes me aware, but not scared. What's your favorite story to tell on your tours? Uh, So specifically, you're talking about my Murder Walk Austin tour? Yes, I love the story. You'd think it would be about one of the murders, although the murder of Mary Ramey is very compelling. She was the youngest victim of the servant girl annihilator. She was only 11 years old. Can you tell me about the story of the servant girl annihilator? In 1885, Austin had a very bad year. So that's the beginning of it. It was that year that one individual um, killed eight of our citizens in a seemingly random pattern, crisscrossing streets and alleyways. And he didn't just uh, sneak in and shoot you in your sleep. This guy used an ax, which is particularly violent. Actually used an, an ax, a knife, and an ice pick at the beginning. He lobotomized his victims, which was his signature. And horrific is an understatement. This is a type of sociopath that would have made Ted Bundy blush. Their murders created so much bad press for Austin. Newspapers were being sent out everywhere about these murders. That was rough. We had a crime problem on our hands. And it fascinates me that as the murders began to pile up, newspapers were a big deal in the 1880s. It was the golden age of newspapers. This is the gilded age. This is the industrial revolution exploding You know, in, in, on the East Coast. Men like Pulitzer and Hearst are becoming tycoons in the newspaper business. And as the Austin murders pile up, word is getting out that something is terribly wrong in Austin. And it just so happens that a young Joseph Pulitzer writes a 6,000 word story on the Austin murders, and he begins to sell it all over America, newspapers in San Antonio and Dallas and Houston, San Francisco, Chicago, New York are writing about this little cow town in Texas for all the wrong reasons, right? So men like Driscoll and the mayor, Mayor Robertson, are thinking, oh, my gosh, like, this couldn't be worse. You know, this couldn't be worse for business. So the profound impact that these murders had because of their salacious details. Because of all the bad press going around about Austin, they didn't know what to do. 
One response to the murders was the installation of moon towers. Jim explains the theory behind the moon towers and why they took so long to install. Yeah, well, there's schools of thought on that differ. I'm in the camp that says that it is uh, most definitely a response. Um, it would be hard to take out of the equation the fact that these murders happened in the middle of the night, two, three o'clock in the morning, in the dark, and that you had a community that was absolutely terrified. Keep in mind that the moon towers start uh, going up in 1890. This is only, what, four years after the last murders, mm -hmm. uh, five years, and we we have a great advantage in hindsight of knowing that the, the murders were over, but Austinites didn't know that. They were scared, shaking in their boots. So when the, the, when the moonlight towers go up, they are no doubt put up in part because of the fear that, that was pervasive in this community. Another piece of evidence that they were a direct result of the murders is that there was an attempt to put the moon towers up in 1885 between the first and second murders. And there was a four month gap uh, between the murder of Molly Smith and the, and the murder of Eliza Shelley. And nobody had figured out yet that there was a serial killer on the loose. You know, they thought the murder of Molly Smith was a one-off murder. Uh, and I just say that so you'll understand that when it was put to a, a vote or a discussion the first time to put up these moonlight towers, it was voted down by Austinites. And the reasons they gave were reasons that ma made sense at the time. They, they thought, why the heck would you want to illuminate the night? That's when people sleep and it'll confuse the animals. And, um, you know, the animal rights activists come out of the woodwork and they say, this is going to confuse everything. Plus, they made a horrible buzzing sound and they were so bright that residents said you could hardly even look at them without going blind. Um, so if they were voted down once, why are they suddenly put up in 1890? Unless, um, what can I say? <laughs> Citizens were suddenly motivated to uh, illuminate the city at night. After hearing about the moon towers, I asked Jim about the legend surrounding the Servant Girl Annihilator and Jack the Ripper. So, yes, there are many theories on who the killer in Austin may have been. Maybe the most tantalizing one is the possibility that our killer in Austin merely paused his work and did not stop. Serial killers rarely stop what they're doing. It's not like they wake up one day with a conscience and uh, turn the other leaf, you know. Usually they're incarcerated for another crime or self-inflicted, uh, rarely do they kill themselves, but they are usually arrested or killed. And that's typically what happens. Uh, the possibility that you're asking about is Jack the Ripper. And there is a school of thought that is maybe more than just wild speculation. There's certainly a possibility, can't rule anything out, that when our killer stopped in 1886, he actually fled the city and ended up in London, just outside of London, in the borough of Whitechapel, where he continued and murdered five more women, the serial killer best known as Jack the Ripper. What do you hope people take away from your tours? You know what? I hope that they just say, my goodness, that was much more than I expected. That was something I'll remember. I'm not just going to remember Austin. I'm going to remember my tour guide. I'm going to remember what happened here. And I hope and pray that they remember the victims, the seven women and one man that were murdered on the streets of Boston in 1885. And that in some small way that their memory lives on 
And maybe, just maybe, these individuals uh, are a little bit more aware of their surroundings. I don't want anyone to live in fear. Never, ever, ever. It's actually the exact opposite is my goal, to uh, make us aware that we might live in freedom and honor these women and men that, that were killed. So that when people come to my tour, they have a unique experience that was more than they expected. This story was produced by Bilad Cortez with assistance from Janelle Ramirez for Stories from Deep in the Heart, a project of Texas Folklife. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. I have eaten a lot of barbecue. I've stayed at the Driscoll and been scared myself at the prospects of haunting. And if you've ever watched the classic Austin film, Dazed and Confused, you may have even seen a moon tower yourself. As we shake the cobwebs off from summer break, our next episode will be October 1st with Rosie Carranza, an NFB superstar in my humble opinion. From the TSBBI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.